Hi again, it's Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. It has been a while since our last episode, and I have many excuses for that, which I will not bore you with, so let's get right to it. I think what makes our conversations interesting is the face-to-face we always have, and actually required at one point. We used to say no to virtual conversations. We said no to Barack, we said no to Bruce... No, I'm just kidding. But we aren't idiots, as far as you know. And we are still chatting with our guests virtually because of the evil COVID. And while I am not a fan, I still at least get to talk with great musicians who turn out to be great people as well. Two fellows who fall into these two descriptions are Paul Wright and Tim Harrington from the band Tall Heights. Like many, Paul and Tim, or Tim and Paul, depending on who you ask, began their musical journey by busking on the streets of Boston. They soon left the harsh Quincy Market streets for the road, which they now ride in luxury on the Spirit of Beverly, which you will hear about shortly. These guys from Sturbridge, not to be confused with Stockbridge, are road warriors, and luckily they were almost able to finish a tour before COVID hit. I talked with them about what they've been doing lately, including their Tall Heights backyard tour, their fan sing-along, and a lot of other things. I don't want to ruin the surprise. So, here is our conversation with Tall Heights, recorded virtually in Boston, Massachusetts. Hello, Paul. How How are you? Good. Hey, folks. Hey, how Paul, Tim, Tim, Paul, you guys know each other? That's <laughs> good to meet you. It's, we're, 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 we're old workmates. Well, first of all, let me apologize for the last time. It's, I don't know, I have no excuse. I think we're, we're all like, for me personally, I'm having a really hard time like getting used to like, COVID <laughs> has like shot my ability to like be accountable. So, <laughs> so I, uh, I'm not putting that on you. I, but I, I have struggled to like track things uh, as I'm like getting back to, I don't know, whatever life is. Before yeah, well, I look like I've been stuck under something heavy in my apartment for a while. So <laughs> if I shower, you know, I feel like it's a good day. Totally. You know. Paul, where are you at? Uh, I am home in Portland, Maine. In Portland, Maine? Yeah, Tim and I used to live together in Beverly, Mass. And uh, we moved to separate places in September. Well, Happy New Year to you guys. Happy New Year. Ditto. And I kind of always start off with this, just kind of get the conversation going. But I don't want you to talk about your your touring that you did, your your backyard thing yet, because I'm excited to talk about that, because that's right up my alley. Uh, but otherwise, how are you guys holding up in your, your hidey holes there, wherever you are? Yeah, doing okay. Um, as, I, as I was saying before, you know, we were, we were lucky in the, the first eight months of COVID that we were sharing the same space. And so we you know, wrote a ton of songs and, and just kept chugging away. It's like, you know, having a sense of purpose is, is so important in this weird time. And, and we had that and we're now in the process of, of mixing record and, and excited about it. So that's just like a great source of forward momentum, but yeah, obviously it's, it's a weird time and we're sort of like adjusting to not being in the same space every day, just trying to be optimistic. Yeah, we, we had kind of this like amazing opportunity actually when when uh, COVID cut our last like proper tour, it, it cut it short by like five shows or something. So in the grand scheme yeah. of things, we, we escaped relatively unscathed. Yeah, that's not bad. Paul, how many shows had we already snuck in on that tour? Like 25 or something? Yeah, uh, probably, yeah, 20 plus. And we'd already also done um, 
the rock boat and like we just had a really busy first quarter of the year yeah right january february march were pretty we're pretty busy we got home as the world was shutting down kind of like oh god i'm so glad that we snuck that thing in and then the other piece of our good fortune you know and i hate to talk about it like that because there's so many people who got so unlucky but uh but the other sort of piece of good fortune that we that we found ourselves upon as COVID hit was we weren't dropping an album. In fact, we were like about as far away from dropping an album as possible. Like we were, the plan was to get home from that tour and kind of like hunker down. All right, we finished that tour. We're good for a little while. Let's just record. Uh, But then COVID hit and it was especially clear to us that we need to just use this time to, you know, make, make something, you know, at that moment, nobody knew how long it would last. So we were like, probably everybody's going to have a record on the other side of this thing. So let's make sure that ours is one of the good ones, you know? And then furthermore, just like due to life forces that were greater than COVID, we knew that we were both going to be moving out of this house that we had each together with our wives been sharing uh, for, for six years before. So we even like, like I think about the things that result in crippling apathy I think isolation is one of them. And then like lacking a due date would be the other one, right? Like not having any, any accountability, nothing to like say, Hey, you got to get this done by then. So like, as far as us generating our COVID record, we did have a real set due date of like, Hey, we're moving out of this house. And once we move out of this house, we're like exiting each other's COVID bubbles and it's going to get a lot harder to work together. So we had like six months and I mean, that's crazy that we had six months of like living in the same place with a due date, with a sense of urgency, with a sense of purpose. And uh, we recorded like 23 new songs. Wow. I was just going to say, you think about like all the things that would pull us away from home studio time in under normal circumstances, shows, tours, and then obviously just like life, social engagements. And um, obviously none of that was happening. So it was really wonderful focus time. And also just a sense of like, we could do this later. <laughs> you know, like, I, I think that's having that urgency was, was, all, it was all, it was, it was kind of for us, it was a perfect storm to actually keep us very, very productive during that time. Yeah. You guys are, I mean, so many people I talked to were just about to, or just did drop an album. Like, um, you know, the guys from Session Americana, you know, those yeah. guys? so right, we had Rye on and he was like, he put out a solo album that was very personal to him because it was about he he re-recorded he recorded all of his father's songs, and he was going to tour on it, and he just just kind of blew it out of the water, and he's not even going to tour it now, which is, I think is uh, such a bummer. I mean, I hope he I hope he changes his mind because they're fantastic songs, but uh, yeah, you're that is very fortunate that you guys were kind of finishing up what you were doing, and you ended up where you were. So I'm very glad that you're able to do that, especially because. Um, you know, it wasn't just you guys putting together, you said 23 songs. Was this all done in your own recordings, in your own home studios? Yeah. So like we always had this idea of like, let's let's uh, kind of gather and cull the, all of the, the, the songs we have written, anything that that we can develop to a state of, of like making it a recording. Mm-hmm. So that the first the first several months was just a a total onslaught of just get things down, make recordings. You know, we did during that time, we experimented for the first time with some co-writing and stuff with mm. other artists, which actually didn't turn into much for us. Like we, we learned a lot, but we, it ended up not being a, 
big feature on the record. In mm-hmm. fact, the thing that we learned is probably we should just stick to writing the two of us. But it was uh, it was kind of at first just gather gather the information, take take all the uh, all the songs and and make push them down the field as far as possible. And then as soon as we kind of like got out of the co living situation, then we figured out which songs were going to get brought all the way to the end. And we actually finished 15 of those 23 songs uh, together in Omaha with a producer. Uh, and we just did that a couple of weeks ago. 15 songs. Is it going to be a double album? <laughs> uh, no, probably. It's just going to be one record. Uh, we're still probably going to cut a few. So yeah, I start with 23, get down to 15 and now, and probably the record will be like nine or 10 or 11 songs. Are you going to, uh, are you putting this album coming out in vinyl? Definitely. Is everyone is all your albums out on vinyl? Yes, actually. Oh. Um, our first one, Manistone, is uh, is out of print at the moment, but they're all we, we have pressed them. Well, how cool is that? You get to see one of your albums out of print. That's very. <laughs> it was great. like, I mean, we probably we we probably made five hundred of them, and at the time, it was like folks pressing it are like, well, you could pay a million dollars for a hundred, or you could pay ten dollars for. <laughs> And they sat around for the first couple of years, and then they just started going. Well, when when did you make that album? That that was uh, back in 2013. That was 2013. So that's really kind of vinyl at the time was starting to make a little bit of a comeback, but not nearly as much as it is now. Yeah. Well, at this point in time, we're not selling any CDs, so you got to sell <laughs> yeah. something. You ever hear of David Bieber or the David Bieber yeah. archives? Yeah. Yeah. So David's awesome. We've had him yeah. on the show. He's the LBCN guy. He's got the David Bieber archives in Norwood. And one of the projects I'm doing, I'm going to be organizing all of his concert posters that he's collected. Um, but one of his friends and someone I know, Brian Coleman, posted audio of a BCN day in 1977 or something like that, of just the audio of WBCN playing and interviewing people and playing music and the advertisements and stuff. It was so fascinating because they were saying, um, Oh yeah, come down to our record store. We have eight tracks for three 99 and, and vinyl for four 99. It was, I don't know. It kind of blew my mind. I was just listening to that before I got on, before I got on this with you. It was, uh, I love hearing that stuff. There's a website where you can like uh, go and listen to tune in to like any radio from any year in any country. It's pretty cool. You can pick like a year. I don't, I couldn't like tell you the name of the website, but I know it's out there. It's cool. If you just want like a random sound to inspire you or something, you know, you could go to Germany in in 1962 and listen to what the radio is. Anyways, I keep on digressing. I wanted to talk to you about your decision to do backyard, the backyard tour that you did. You know, when, when COVID hit, um, we did a above the basement, did a together home sessions where people, like yourselves just would be at home and zoom in. You really, I mean, you sent out even like a, a questionnaire to them and you really did your due diligence before you went on tour. Can you talk about that decision and, and how it worked out? Sure. Yeah. We wanted to be sensitive to, you know, the changing time and, you know, just like not, we, we only wanted to do it if people were comfortable with it and excited about it. And people really were, this was our, our manager Mark's idea initially. And, uh, he said, you know, we can just sell our own tickets and get some hosts who have decent backyards and um, and just keep it small. You know, 30 people tell everybody they got to wear a mask and um, and, and it's, it's something and your fans will probably really love it. And 
man, it, it really was such a, a special bunch of shows. Amazing what 30 people scattered across the backyard feels like, um, you know, compared to the crowds you're used to playing for. Yeah, so. we were when we were talking about it, like in the, in the scheming phase, uh, it was definitely a concern that we had artistically of like, well, how much is it going to actually like, you know, it's a cool idea, but how much is it going to actually suck to play for people who are you can't see their face and mm. they can't they can't be near each other and there's not that many of them. It's like, you know, even though the show is all sold out, they don't look like sold out shows because we had to cap the we had to keep it nice and safe and distant and outdoors and everything. And, and some of the backyards we ended up selecting were flipping huge. So it's <laughs> like you got 30 people in a in like a could fit. Uh, easily a thousand people so that's a real concern going into it is like is this actually kind of a bad look is this a bad idea uh is this ultimately going to be something where we look back and say man that was uh that was those were pretty rough shows actually uh and you know because there are a number of reasons why to do that and one of them you know during a pandemic is certainly a financial one and that like we got to make our our living and so there was there was reason to go out and do them just from a financial angle but then ultimately we did them and we were like, Oh shit, there's so much energy in these crowds. Like, and there's so much love and there's such an exchange. Like the mask did nothing to stop like the, um, the emotive, like uh, connection there of, of like playing music. Chuck, you were asking about like, how did we do it? We put out a, a social media post that said like, can we play your backyard? We put up a, uh, a, uh, like a special tab on our website, tallheights.com slash backyard. And, the ba- and that had like a very clear, almost like a flow chart of like, how do I get from here to hosting a Tall Heights show in my backyard? And then there were submission forms and people had to put in, you know, write basically like write a small essay about why they wanted it. They needed to put in dimensions as to their backyard. Like how big is their backyard, which is like a funny thing to ask somebody, but you know, when you're trying to prevent the spread of, of a pandemic where it actually size really did matter. And so we had photos of the backyards. There were phone calls in advance, kind of like vetting the people, making sure they're not like ax murderers. And, uh, and eventually, uh thing, like people are sort of acting as they're, they're like the promoter all of a sudden obviously they're not like collecting money from people they're not selling tickets but like they're sort of the de facto host so you right. want to sure people you know are doing it for the right reasons and whatever gonna be. well not only that but the, I, I mean aren't they having strangers come to their yeah. Alice as well. It's Sometimes. Not right. Well, actually also on that, like tallheights.com slash backyard there, one Avenue a person could take in their submission would be to put on a private show, which, uh, the, like the technical way that that's different from the private, from the public show is that we don't sell tickets. They just right. pay us a flat fee and right. then they can have whoever the heck they want at, in their backyard gathering versus uh, a public show would be, they don't pay the host doesn't have to pay us anything. We just sell tickets to our fans and then people show up. Yeah. I mean, we did both public and private shows. Uh, they were all really special. Of course, there's nothing to, to be honest, nothing beats a crowd of people who bought tickets to see you rather than a crowd of people who are gathered by an individual who happened to, who happens to really love us. So, uh, cause actually like part of this is that we will be doing more of these. We had an experience before the world shut down, I think this is last year, where we were on tour uh, 
we did a bunch of touring with Ben Folds. We were both his opening act and his band. And uh, one of his jaded stage managers was like, well, what's so hard about your job? All you need to do is show up and play songs you made up. And uh, and we we like chuckled about it because uh, he was right. <laughs> and like, and that is all we do. Um, and I do think that when you're in the normal world, uh, in in a in a, a time when you could just go out to a live music venue and catch music if you want to, or maybe it'll just find you when you go to the restaurant or to a bar. There's just like a pianist in the corner, right. and, like kind of giving you some collateral live music uh, as you're like having a conversation whatever that is so i think it is it is really easy to forget about the importance of live music uh when it's so easy to find and and i ought to be honest like i forget about the importance of sure. live music. like it's not sometimes i think what i do doesn't matter and sometimes i think what i do is trivial and that uh the shit that we spend our life like agonizing over it doesn't really matter because if it went away tomorrow forever the world would just keep on spinning and people would be just fine but actually i can now say because i've seen it with my own eyes that when you take live music away from people and then you give it back to them they're singing a different tune you know mm. it's, it's it's a different it's a different sort of like nourishment it's it's truly like a starving soul situation and people uh, ourselves included at these backyard shows were really feasting. It was quite, quite the feeding uh, on a, what a feeding on a soul level. That, I love the way you put that. That's exactly, that's exactly right. You know, it also, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, you can grow up listening to classical music that your parents play or, you know, as a kid, but I remember the first time I ever heard an orchestra in person that is a, such a vivid moment for me. It blew me away seeing it live. It totally changed the whole idea of classical music for me. Man, you know, I got to do that very soon. I You just like got me really excited to do that. To go see some classical music? <laughs> like a fucking huge chamber <laughs> ensemble. Just like mow me down. I'll spend a bunch of money for front row tickets. Uh, well, that's why I was I was so glad you lived next to Tanglewood. Because you can go to Tanglewood. <laughs> yeah. Paul, you missed it. Yeah. From here, from from my home here in Stockbridge. <laughs> I, had, I had that confusion in the beginning of the way that I guess. For, like, and, and for the listeners, to be clear, I live in Sturbridge, not Stockbridge. Right, right, right. Uh, so another thing I wanted to talk to you about is uh, the spirit of Beverly. Yeah. What a nice ride that is. I only saw that one picture of you guys sitting in that chair. But how long have you had that? What is that? A minivan? Is is it, what is that? It's a it's a Sprinter. Um, thank you for bringing this up. Yeah, so, I actually want to cut in here and say I'm not going to talk for the next ten minutes because uh, <laughs> the spirit of Beverly was a it was a serious victory of of a lot of different skills by Paul. It was a a crazy crazy story how it got went from Mercedes creating it to us owning it and fixing it up. So, and, and I have so much respect for Paul pulling it off. All right, let's hear it. That's quite set up. Okay. So we, back in 2018, we kind of had our first big long tour with the band called Judah and the lion. And we were also with our friends colony house, both opening for Judah. And we rented a sprinter van um, for that tour. It used to belong to our buddy, Ryan Moplu. And it was wonderfully decked out, had bunks in the back. And this van saved our lives because we were chasing a tour bus every night. So, you know, like 
the tour bus drives 10 hours a night and everybody sleeps while the bus is driving. But when you're opening the tour, you got to drive after the show and before the show the next day, you're not just sleeping in your bunk. Except that with a van like this, most people can sleep and somebody drives and you take turns and it like keeps you on the road fresh for three months. Yeah. Whereas you'd be a total zombie after two weeks in just a, you know, upright seat minivan or whatever, yeah. which is what we toured in for years. And we were um, about to put out our record pretty colors and looking at a lot of touring in our future. And it was really expensive to rent a van like that. And we decided, you know, we should just try to invest in ourselves and, and get one of our own. We just had no idea how hard that would be. First, we tried to, to buy a used one and because these things kind of like run forever. Like you get one, it'll run for half a million miles. And Which we don't. Which we don't. Yes. And sure. that didn't work out, whatever. We came close to one. Didn't happen. We're still renting. It's expensive. And in the distance is our headline tour for Pretty Colors, the biggest tour that we had ever done at that point. We were bringing the most people on the road that we'd ever brought. It's like seven people in the van and doing that kind of like tour bus driving, but without a bus in order to whatever, hit Seattle on a Friday when you're coming from Denver on a Wednesday or something stupid like that. So we just had this this crunch, like could we get the van in time. I've never, I never even like bought a new car at all to begin with, not to mention a, a van, but like whatever, like went to the dealership, we're working it out. Turns out like if you're getting, you want a full length van, you got to get the new one and the new ones come from Germany and they come in two different pieces because of this weird tax and the engine comes separately from the rest of the van and wow. it gets assembled in the States and shipped up. So that just took way longer than we thought. And even then we're not buying like the passenger van that costs a ton of money and is already you know, sort of like furnished, even if not the way we'd have it. We're buying a cargo van that's just a shell of a vehicle. Right. Right? And we had some friends who were decking out vans like this, converting Sprinter vans, but they unfortunately uh, were out on the West Coast in Oregon and also Montana. And so we're trying to see like, can we get this van in from Germany, get it reassembled, shipped to us? Can somebody bring it out? It ended up being to Minnesota to get furnished and then get it to us in time for the tour. And so we're going from like a cargo shell to four bunks in the back, captain's chairs, a couch, a fridge, solar on top to power the fridge and electrical, like pretty serious bunch of work. Because of all those steps and everything being delayed, a dear friend, Polly, drove it for us to go get outfitted and then drove it to us five days into the headline tour of Pretty Colors. We were in a rental vehicle. He drove he met up with you. Met up with us in Milwaukee, swapped it out, drove off with the old one with the rental. And we were sort of like, you know, zero to zero to sixty in our new van, like grabbing <laughs> sheets and and you know, like outfitting it at Target in between soundcheck and the show, and then just like driving all night in it and and never looked back. Actually, the first the first thing that happened when we got the new van is we started driving, we put the trailer on the back of it, and the trailer uh, hitch instantly started dragging on the ground because it was like this high off of the pavement because our trailer hitch and the the way they put it on the the sprinter it just wasn't the right match so our first trip was to walmart to buy a lug wrench this is at like after a show at like 12 30 a.m uh we're walking into a walmart looking for a about uh one of those ball yeah uh, yeah 
yeah, whatever they're called, trailer hitches, yeah. the right size, and and it's something that might uh, come off of the van. I'm trying to see myself on the come yeah. off of the van in such a way that it would go up and give us a little more clearance from the ground. Yeah, that was pretty like indicative of of the times ahead of as how it would go getting that van up and running weight either and like where you're supposed to put the weight on the trailer and um we were very lucky to to not have died on several occasions but, uh, the spirit is um it's a it's a great it's just a great little spaceship why is it called the spirit of beverly we did live in beverly and it sort of is you know it just kind of like looks like a big boat and also like our friend john was some i think he was the first one to float he called his yeah. wife Beverly or something like that. And he said the spirit of Beverly. And we're like, oh my God, that's its name. Uh, yeah. And also we loved that it's SOB. And um, yeah, it residing yeah. from, it, it, it would like make, make a, what's the word, the nautical term for like making camp, make bay, make, make port. Make port. Yes. That sounds right. I don't know. Make port in, uh, in our driveway in that shared house that we had for a while. Um, the spirit of Beverly. And well, that's Beverly great. It's, it certainly beats having to like sit in a horrible van on the floor. And I honestly think it, it, it saved us, you know, like we didn't know what was ahead. And obviously we didn't know we'd be not touring most of this year, but for two years and a lot of big long tours, um, it really did save us. And we just drove it out to Omaha to make, finish this record and back. Oh. In you can do all sorts of crazy shit when you yeah. can just sleep, you know, like right. you can just pull uh, over and sleep. The, the most, the most epic of drive, uh, the drive of all drives that we did was um, we were actually coming off of a crazy tour where uh, another just like miraculous sort of feat of logistics, but a Ben folds tour spilled directly into which the Ben folds tour is in a bus. So we're like just in Ben's bus for those tours. Uh, and that tour ended in uh, Dallas. Uh-huh. And then our the spirit of Beverly happened to be there in Dallas, you know, like the, the ma- magic work of Paul Wright being being a logistics master. Uh, so the, the uh, and actually, I should say also our, our tour manager, Paul Dumas um, and drummer. Um, but he that our our van was just waiting there in dallas for us we get in the van we drive out to la which is where he would just come we had just been in la with the ben folds tour whatever that we join up the ben folds tour ends we join up with this other month-long tour with a band called the uh the paper kites and that takes us all over the country for like the second time in a row uh with having not gone home and that tour by the luck of the draw ends in Alberta, Canada. In Edmonton, yeah. In Edmonton. Uh, like, just pull up maps there, Chuck. Take a look at Edmonton to Boston. And uh, you should also like put a stop in Montana. I think if you do it on maps, it'll like dra- drive you all the way across Canada, but you don't want to do that. We did it. Uh, we did it straight without stopping, and uh, it was it was 70 something hours in the van straight. Three, and just three of us? Yeah, three of us. Two of us would be sleeping. I mean, basically the way the 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 cadence of our days were drink a bunch of coffee, drive for three hours, drink a bunch of NyQuil, sleep for as much of six hours as, as you can, drink a bunch of coffee, drive for three hours, and repeat. <laughs> That's tough. That's tough. How many, how many miles do you think you've put on it since you've had it? Uh, we are over 50. Yeah, we're at like 55,000. That's not too bad. In, uh, in 
two years, obviously, like with six months of that being or nine months of that. being yeah. COVID. So we, we probably would have been at 75 or so by now. That's a great story. It's like the mystery machine. You know, what the mystery machine is no. Did you ever watch um, the uh, the Scooby-Doo? No, I'm not a Scooby-Doo guy, to be honest. I grew up with Scooby-Doo, and that's what the, the those kids had, their mystery machine, oh, the green okay. thing. Was it like uh, a VW? No, it was like a it was like a yeah, it was like a VW bus kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you uh, just don't you don't like Scooby Doo or you don't watch it? Yeah, what do you got against Scooby Doo, man? Oh, nothing against Scooby Doo. I actually my favorite part about Scooby Doo is that the, that debunked theory that every character is named after uh, or is is modeled after one of the colleges in the, the uh, Amherst area of Massachusetts. Really? Have you heard this theory? Yeah. yeah. So it's like Scooby is uh is uh UMass Amherst. Cause he's like the, I'm just going to say like the way that they, I'm not saying this is the, the case, but be Scooby, careful. Be yeah, careful what you say. Scooby's like the, uh, like the, the dumbass. Uh, <laughs> and then there's uh Hampshire college is Scooby's master. What's his name? Shaggy. Shaggy. Shaggy he's the pothead Hampshire. Yeah. Thelma is the lesbian Smith. Fred is. Yeah, very good. In, you know all the names, man. So that's Fred good. is Fred is Amherst. The prep. All right. And who's who uh, Daphne? Daphne is uh, Mount Holyoke, the Ditz, Ditz Blonde. Wow. And I didn't, I have never heard that before. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, I, I've, re I've read that it's not true. So, oh, well, I just like to think of it that way, you know. That, I like that. I like the idea of it. I'm not sure how the, uh, the dumbasses feel over at, uh, <laughs> hey, it's, that's a great school. And, uh, and it's a great not, school. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, so not have liked them, I guess. I don't know. Maybe uh, I think it's probably just because he's it's like a it's at least for when I was growing up, it was always like thought of as a big party school. But uh, I I never thought of anybody who went there as a dumbass. Let it be let the record show. Okay, but, yeah. but I'm just saying what the trope of the characters in this like fan theory of like these all these characters were all named after. You're not going to talk your way out of this one, Tim. I'm yeah, sorry. I think yeah, you already. True. You already dug your own grave, I think. Our career, our career is over. Is Western. Our show, our shows at Iron Horse will never sell out. All right, let's talk about music. You know, there's a lot that was that's been said about you guys when you started busking and and how many hundreds of hours you, you used to do that. You know, I find that that's such a. I mean, I think I I I kind of equate it to to you guys being on the road. You know, that's it's a very school hard knocks kind of thing you just you do it and that's where you learn a lot and it's hard and and you know it's it's you're sweating your butt off while you do it and there's not necessarily money at the end of it but you know it's what you do do you look back on those days of busking i mean do you look back on it affectionately or is it one of those things that you kind of look back and say well i'm glad i did it but i would never do it again yeah, I definitely look at it affectionately because we don't have to do it again, right? Yeah, you know, sure. Um, yeah, it's sweet. Good. It's sweet in part because it's over. But I mean, the, I'm grateful for those experiences. We wanted to be touring outside of Boston. We wanted to be playing real shows. And the truth is that at that point in our careers, those really were the best shows that we could get and that we could have played at the time. Yeah. Um, because once we sort of like figured out how to get out of the like play a cover so somebody walking by stops real quick and like put on a show at Faneuil, like wait, you know, get get the evening slot and and play our own songs and get people to sit down and like and 
engage with us and, and watch a real show and then take her record home. Um, once, once we did that, it, it was honestly, you know, way better than whatever touring we would have been doing on our own at that point, trying sure. to like get again, Cleveland. Um, because those people who happened to be walking through Boston and heard our music and, and loved it, um, had like, you know, some kind of like discovery experience that made them want to like stay in touch and come see us in Seattle five years later. It was also just doing the same thing every night as opposed to like different stage, different sound system, same thing every day. Uh, it made us so much better at doing the guitar, cello, vocals thing and just sort of like repeat and improve. Yeah, cool. I, you know, it's something I had always wanted. I'm a guitarist myself and it, it was something when I was in college at Northeastern, I was like, I should busk. And I went to Berkeley for a little bit, but you know, a bunch of people that I know, it, just so many people have done it. It's, it's, I think it's just a rite of passage. I think it's something that everybody should do because um, I mean, you, I think you find out a lot about yourself. I would imagine you're the only thing keeping them there. Right. So it's not like they're there to go, you're not in a restaurant, you're not in a bar, you you know, I, so I don't know. I just find it. it, it I, I think anybody who's listening to this should should definitely do it once once you're once you're allowed to yeah. do it. It's do a it. rare it's a rare opportunity for a binary reaction from the crowd. It's like either they stay or they go. That's true. Either, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. It's it's the ultimate. Um, you know, they may throw you a buck, but then take off. But uh, that's fine as long as they throw you a buck. Paul, you're the uh, cellist, right? So do you use the, uh, the Mike block cello strap? I, I have one. Mike was really nice to send me one. Yeah. Um, and I tried it and it's awesome. I, I don't use it, uh, in touring right now. Um, I tend to also play some keyboards and it's yeah, yeah. important to actually have the cello like tighter to my body rather than Mike's strap, like helps you actually simulate like seated positioning that like yeah. gets the bottom of the cello out in front of you, which I think is great and helps you play better, no doubt. But uh, it's just worked better for me to have it sort of flat on my body. So you guys, I, I was looking, I was listening to your stuff on Spotify. Well, the, the most recent things that you that are on Spotify are basically singles, right? And you know, you did Boys Don't Cry. I'm a, I'm a huge Cure fan. Your version of Boys Don't Cry. I mean, you all, you also did the the one with. Helplessly hoping with Ryan on blue. I really enjoyed that one. Uh, but you did the boys don't cry cover and you know what? It, it kind of reminds me of, you guys know the, the guy, uh, sun kill moon. Yeah. He does a ton of covers that he takes and makes them totally his own. You would never recognize the song if it weren't for the lyrics. And while it's not quite that drastic, a change if you had different lyrics, I wouldn't probably recognize the song. I, I, I like it when people take songs that I like, or you know, whatever song, to take covers and really make it their own, not just replaying it, which is fine too. I like that too, but really kind of doing a total, totally new interpretation of the sound. You still have a little bit of the riffs in there for Boys Don't Cry, but if you didn't have the lyrics, you may not recognize it at all. It's so hard to know like why some cover ideas like hold water and others don't like we have entertained covering so many hundreds of songs, you know, it's like, it's, you know, you'll be driving down the road and be like, God, that'd be a cool one to cover or whatever. And, mm -hmm. and certainly for me, I don't see a, a, 
like anybody can listen to an artist and be like, oh, okay, I can hear who this artist likes. You know, it's like you don't need to show your fan base who your inspirations are in like such a literal way. Instead, I think it's way more fun for you and for the fans to go way out there and find an artist that's not the obvious choice for you to be covering the song and to create a piece of music that is inspired by the songwriting, but not by the sound, you know? I think that's just the truth. The truth of, of everything that we do is it all just boils down to songwriting. Like the great songs last, the shitty songs fade away. You can show your fans that that is true by finding a song that you, that your fans never would have appreciated, but then contextualizing it to them through the thing that they like about you. Then you can show somebody like how eternal good songwriting is, you know, probably a lot of tall heights fans, especially the younger ones don't even know who the heck the cure is. Mm. And I like that song a lot. I have for a long time. I've loved, I loved them and that song in college, probably even earlier than that high school. You know, in high school, I went through like a, a Cure and Cheap Trick and other that kind of like other music of that in that sort of uh, vein. And and so certain songs from that from that time of my life still stick with me as great songs. But nobody would know that that's an influence on me or on us as a band unless we say like, here, look, actually, the the act of creating the act of writing a song and putting lyrics to melody over instrumentation that's not so different from what we do here it is the way we do it but it's the same song it's the same lyrics it's the same melody and then hopefully it just leads to more further in, uh, appreciation for just good songwriting and lyrics seem to be very not that it's not to other musicians but lyrics seem to be a very big part of of what you do and you really seem to put a lot of thought in your lyrics to the point that you even um put your lyrics on your website which I wish more artists would do. They remind, you know, it's like when you get an album cover and you have the lyrics there. I mean, I, that's what I grew up with. I love being able to see the lyrics. And nowadays, you know, I'm even hard pressed to be even even to know the name of the song sometimes because I'm just saying Spotify play this band, and I won't have anything in front of me to know what the name of the song is. Never mind the lyrics, which I, you know, maybe if I'm listening, I can I can get. I'm mean, I'm a huge REM fan and. Even if I'm listening to the lyrics, a lot of times you can't tell what he's even saying. It's it's so esoteric sometimes with the, some of the times the lyrics that he's saying. But when you have the lyrics in front of you, I, I just I like the the fact that you guys put that up front, especially on your website. I like that. I like that you do that. I was just listening to um, that uh, Big Red Machine uh, collab with Michael Stipe just like an hour ago. What, what is that? It's a you know that like Bon Iver side project. There's like some. Some like single that he put out. No time for love like now. Okay. Yeah, lyrics of all, were like totally foundational to falling in love with each other's songwriting and um, pushing each other's songwriting further. You know, like we started writing together when we, whatever, Tim was probably 18 and I was 20 kind of thing. That's not right. Something like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm in. Um, yeah, obviously, like, you know, you have a lot of, like, teenage emotions and stuff going into your early songs, but there was always just, like, an enthusiasm for, like, digging digging deep on lyrics and, and like, having ambiguity that's cool because it's, too, like, it's like a double meaning happening. Um, yeah, just, like, embracing poetry. There's another thing that you just you just posted on Facebook where you put out a call to people to sing for you. 
and send in their audio of them singing along that they can go on the album. Did that, did that work out for you? Yeah. Well, we haven't heard the finished mix yet. So, uh, how many people, how many people sent stuff in? Did you get a lot? Uh, too many. Yeah. It was awesome. Um, (laughs) I, I, the thing that I found so touching about that and because like the reality is that we couldn't use them all, but, uh, I loved two parts of of it. I loved the people who like, were just singing and they're not very good at singing and they saw the importance of that. Like we need to sing together right now. You know, like the people who you could tell the difference between the people who thought they were good at singing and the people who were just doing it because they love the idea. Yeah. And, uh, and some people were like really showy about their singing and stuff and they saw an opportunity to like show off or, yeah, yeah. or and you know, those people are fun and that was cool. Yeah, but, yeah. but my favorite was my favorites were the people who were like off key and just giving it their best shot. And and I was like, so touched by those people because I'd hear them and I just like, I, it was, it, it's what a sing along is all about. And it's what we've been so deprived of. It's like those people can't just be in a crowd, letting it rip, you know, in, in anonymity of like, well, I know I'm not very good at singing, but this means so much to me right now that I'm just singing it out. So I loved those people. And then I loved the notes that people gave as they were, delivering their vocal stem of of like you know saw you then or loved this when you did that loved the show in x city whatever it was just so many just heartwarming notes accompanied the delivery of those vocals and um yeah so we we probably we we harvested for like two days or something we put out the social media thing we let them build up in our inbox we went in downloaded them put them in the session and then we stopped downloading like we that was all we needed you know it was such a cool kind of like touching experience to receive all those it's a real act of trust from the person who sends you because i don't know they're just singing into their phone right. with no no one else is singing with them and they're sending it to you that's a real thing of trust saying i love this band enough to send this to them yeah, to me, I mean, well, that's that's exactly it. And and I think that level of trust, that like relationship is like so like front and center for us as to like what we are trying to do. You know, like I want that level of trust with our fan base. It wasn't so like carefully messaged from us. We just like put it up in, in like gave some instructions as to how to do it. But mm-hmm. like most people in their subject line of the email said COVID sing along. So it's like they could see what they were doing. They knew that they were that this was a a moment to join voices together and like joined join in a group in in any way they could. And and those people with like the uh, like the the message say like oh I really I really suck at singing but I'm so glad to do this you know that kind of thing. Yeah. And then and then you listen and you're like he does or she does suck at singing and I love him or her. I love this person because of that. COVID has been so good for, for that, like the, the realism between um, fans and artists when you're playing shows on the road and, you know, trying to put on a great show and you're like thinking a lot about the lights and, you know, the stages get bigger and it's like the it's like bigger production or whatever. I'm not talking about anything crazy, but you just sort of like can lose track of the fact that like your fans just sort of love you as you are. And the converse is, is true as well. And what it, playing songs from our living room for the weekly Tall Heights Thursday live stream we did was was huge for reminding us of that. Like, no stage, bad sound, just finished a day of songwriting and, like, grabbed some dinner and sat down in front of people. And um, 
it's just like a really meaningful exchange. We would like to thank Paul and Tim, or Tim and Paul, for the conversation. You can hear their music and see what they are doing now at tallheights.com. Go to abovethebasement.com. You can sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. From all of us at Above the Basement, thank you for listening. Tell your friends, wear a mask, and remember, Boston music like its history is unique.